Our reading this morning, like our prayer, is meditative in its form. I've drawn it, edited to reflect inclusive language from Howard Thurman's little treasure of a book, Meditations of the Heart, truly one of my treasure island books, or desert island books, I should say. It's entitled, Keep Alive the Dream in the Heart. And I want to invite us to think of the flame of our chalice as standing for our dream of a world based on compassion and justice. May we then be in a spirit of meditation. As long as we have a dream in our hearts, we cannot lose the significance of living. Now, it's part of the pretensions of modern life to traffic in what is generally called realism. There's much insistence upon being practical, down to earth. Such things as dreams are wont to be regarded as romantic or as a badge of immaturity or as escape hatches for the human spirit. When such a mood or attitude is carefully scrutinized, it's found to be made up largely of pretensions, in short, of bluff. We cannot continue long to live if the dream in the heart has perished. It is then that we stop hoping, stop looking. The last embers of their anticipations fade away. The dream in the heart is the outlook. It is one with the living water welling up from the very springs of being, nourishing and sustaining all of life. Where there is no dream, life becomes a swamp, a dreary, dead place, and deep within our hearts begin to rot. The dream need not be some great and overwhelming plan. It need not be a dramatic picture of what might or must be someday. Such may be important for some. Such may be crucial for a particular moment of human history, but it is not in these grand ways that the dream nourishes life. The dream is the quiet persistence in the heart that, enable, that enables us to ride out the storms of our churning experiences. It is the exciting whisper moving through the aisles of our spirit, answering the monotony of limitless, limitless days of dull routine. It is the touch of significance which highlights the ordinary experience, the common event. It lives in the inward parts. It is deep within where the issues of life and death are ultimately determined. Keep alive the dream, for as long as we have a dream in our hearts, we cannot lose the significance of living. Amen. Baltimore is the birthplace of American Unitarianism. Its seeds grew first in the ground of New England Puritanism, but it was in Baltimore that it emerged in the light of day in a sermon preached from the pulpit of a newly organized church then known as the First Independent Church of Baltimore. The preacher was the Reverend William Ellery Channing, universally acknowledged as the father of Unitarianism in this country. Channing had come down from Boston to preach the sermon at the ordination of Baltimore's first minister, Jared Sparks. Baltimore, then, is our spiritual home. And it feels especially like home to Phyllis and me, as we were privileged to fill that pulpit for 14 years before we turned to interim ministry some years ago. 
We're proud of Baltimore, of its people, its history, its beauty, not to mention its ravens and orioles. Last week again, as 50 years before, Baltimore erupted. It erupted in grief and in anger at the death of a black man named Freddie Gray, at the hands of police officers who had arrested him. Day before yesterday, six of those officers were charged with his murder. We do not know the evidence, but the medical examiners called it a homicide. The courts will decide. The police may have been responsible for Freddie's broken back, but Freddie was but the straw that broke the camel's back. The back of a long straitjacket of resentment and anger by blacks in this country at their experience of lack of respect and of brutality in the hands of our country's police. It's an experience which has come to light in our time thanks to the presence of alert bystanders equipped with the now ubiquitous cell phones and cameras. They're in almost everybody's pocket these days. Now, there are not many black faces in this congregation, and in most of your congregations, we are predominantly white and economically pretty well off. We easily forget that, as Dr. King so eloquently reminded us, there are two Americas. In one America, millions of people have the milk of prosperity and the honey of equality flowing before them. This America is the habitat of millions of people who have food and material necessities for their bodies, culture, and education for their minds. In this America, children grow up in the sunlight of opportunity. But there is another America. This other America has a daily ugliness about it that transforms the buoyancy of hope into the fatigue of despair. In this other America, Dr. King continued, thousands and thousands of people Men in particular walk the streets in search of jobs that do not exist. In this other America, millions of people are forced to live in vermin-filled, distressing housing conditions where they do not have the privilege of having wall-to-wall carpeting. Or these days we would say hardwood floors, I suppose. But all too often they end up with wall-to-wall rats and roaches. In this other America, thousands of young people are deprived of an opportunity to get an adequate education. Every year, thousands finish high school, if they finish at all, reading at a seventh, eighth, sometimes ninth grade level. Not because they're dumb, but not because they don't have the native intelligence, but because the schools are so often inadequate, so overcrowded, so devoid of quality, so segregated, if you will, that the best in these minds can never come out. And so in this other America, unemployment is a reality, and underemployment is a reality. Dr. King spoke these words 50 years ago last month. Much has changed for the better. The laws of this country have been transformed. But we have been reminded by events this week in Baltimore, just a short drive from us, of one thing that has not changed. There are still two Americas. And in few cities is this more, is reality more evident than in Baltimore. With its world-class medical establishment, its world-famous inner harbor and museums, 
and the desolate acres, which were once home to world-class manufacturing, the heart of the city in those days, which once employed thousands and thousands of well-paid workers, and today almost none. Thanks to this massive shift in the world's economy and to sheer racism, a third of Baltimore's population has left the city. What was a city of a million by the close of World War II is now not much over 600,000, although I think they say that finally the tide has turned and the population is now growing slightly. There are now thousands and thousands of derelict row houses, most of them vacant. Please join me in saying the words printed in the order of service as we light the chalice, symbol of our faith. May the light of truth illumine our minds. May the spark of love set our hearts on fire. May the flame of freedom burn brightly within us, now and always. Sometimes it's hard to keep the flame of our vision alive. All this week we have watched the heartrending scenes, the anger and the anguish, the violence and the determination and the caring response of so many who care so deeply about the city. A week of peaceful protests of the police involvement in the death of Freddie Gray has been overshadowed by rioting, fires, looting, and now more developments in the Freddie Gray case. Yet the vision will not die. Even as the rioting subsided, thousands of citizens came out of the streets with brooms and garbage bags to clean up the debris. They brought pizza, free pizza, and music, and they sought to restore peace to the city. There were innumerable free concerts, special concerts held during the week. The Baltimore Symphony was one of them. It has been a week which calls us to feel the pain of our brothers and sisters in Baltimore and across the country who still feel the yoke of racism and discrimination, of lack of respect and lack of jobs. So this morning I've set aside the service I had planned. It can wait. I invite us today to pause and reflect on the events of this week, seared upon our consciousness by the images we've watched on television. Let us reflect, too, on the vision which guides us. Let us come together in a spirit of worship. Our open and boarded up, the rest occupied by legions of unemployed and underemployed people, people with little hope of ever escaping from their straitjacket of racism and poverty. This week, the tip of an iceberg of these took to the streets. At first to protest their lifelong experience of police brutality and demand justice for Freddie Gray, and on a growing scale, to demand that their voices be heard. A riot, as Dr. King famously noted, is the voice of the unheard. And young black men, more than anyone else, 
have long felt unheard. And so we gather this morning for worship, our comfortable life having been overtaken by events. Our well-laid plans must be set aside. I want to invite us into reflection and conversation about the scandal of two Americas. As former Governor Martin O'Malley reminded us this week, make no mistake about it. The anger that we have seen in Ferguson, in Cleveland, in Staten Island, in North Charleston, and in the flames of Baltimore is not just about policing. It's about the legacy of race that would have us devalue black lives, whether their death is caused by a police officer or at the hand of another young black man. Now, I don't want to leave you in despair this morning. Most of the people of Baltimore grieve but are not in despair. You saw on TV, as I did, how so many turned out in the wake of violence to clean up. They brought with them those brooms and shovels and food and music, but they also brought with them hope, which was contagious. The Ravens went around visiting schools in the devastated neighborhoods. Once they reopened, the Orioles made their presence known, too. They played their next game, even though the ballpark at Camden Yards had to have its gates locked so that the police would have more ability to provide security elsewhere in the city. Baltimoreans especially love Adam Jones, the O's star, star outfielder, an African-American who has so visibly adopted the city as his own. As Jones declared at a press conference the other day, I'm not far from these kids, and so I understand all the things they're going through. I say to the youth, your frustration is warranted. The actions, I don't think they are acceptable. If you come from where they came from, you understand, but ruining your community that you have to live in is never an answer. This is their cry. This isn't a cry that is acceptable, but it is their cry, and therefore we have to understand it. The big message, Jones continued, is stay strong, Baltimore. Stay safe. Continue to be the great city I've grown to love over the last eight years I've been here. Continue to be who you are. I know there's a lot of damage in the city. There's also been a lot of good protesting. That's Adam Jones' statement of faith in the future of Baltimore. It's a faith lots of Baltimoreans share, probably most of those who have decent jobs and housing and who've chosen to remain in the city and work for its future. Probably a faith not so easily found in the underclass of those who don't have work nor much prospect of ever having it, of ever climbing out of poverty. There are still, perhaps more than ever, two Baltimores, just as there are two Americas. Where does race fit in? Blacks now control the governing body of the city. They're not shut out, as they might have been 50 years ago. They fill middle-class jobs in health and government and education, as well as leadership of the city. The underclass is black, but so is much of the other class. The underclass is defined not by race, but by education, or lack of it. If there's a villain, 
It's the white flight that emptied the city long ago of money and yet left it saddled with all the urban problems they left behind. And globalization, which emptied it of manufacturing industry. Even though it brought lower prices to most of us for the products made by holders of those jobs now flat abroad. Race remains a big factor, though, in the unwillingness of those who have the remaining jobs here at home to live in the city, side by side with black folks, thereby depriving the city of a huge part of its tax base, but leaving it saddled with all the problems of the area. Race is also at the root of Maryland laws tightened during the era of race discrimination, which prohibit the city from extending its borders and its tax base by annexation of suburban areas of Baltimore County, which surrounds the city like a noose. The county is immensely prosperous. Together with the city, it comprises a metro area which cries out, in my view, for a metropolitan approach to governance and to addressing the area's problems. These issues are immensely complex. And I think I've said enough at this point, perhaps even more than I know. I have no easy answers. There are none. The one thing I do have to contribute is a deep conviction that we are all in this together. And a deep faith that together we can bring our two Americas into one America. Black and white, prosperous and poor, we are all brothers and sisters, bound together, as Dr. King said, by a single garment of destiny. Connected as we are by a single human family, there's no place for walls which keep us apart by income or race or class or anything else. That's something to remember when we set up zoning and school district boundaries, rules for housing density and for lot sizes, voting districts and those local government services which it's all too easy to think can only be put in somebody else's backyard. These decisions are often caught up in a subtle racism we may not even be aware of. Now I've said my piece and shared my grief. I think it's your turn. I know you've shed tears too, and many are perplexed. What can we do to knit the two Americas, the two Baltimores, together? Even the two Loudons? What can we do to open our schools and our housing and indeed our lives to each other? and to rebuild the ruins and of devastations of old. Think devastations of 50 years ago. Devastations of this very week now added to them. A couple of years ago, we spoke in this congregation of poverty in Loudoun, and a large group met to consider the possibility of a church-wide project to address poverty. The result was to become an official co-sponsor of All Ages Read Together, an ongoing service project in this community which especially reaches those with low incomes all over the county. Is there more we could do now to address poverty in Loudoun, in our neighboring regions around Baltimore and Washington, to inform ourselves and get involved, to counter police brutality everywhere? What has been stirred